Good morning, I'm Karen Miller, and I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you today. So whether you are watching this from your home, or whether you are here at Church of the Valley, I am so glad that you can join us. Today we're going to be looking at a passage that is familiar to many of us. It's Genesis 4, and it's the history of Cain and Abel. And really, it's a tragic story. It's a story of fratricide, a brother killing brother. Now, we could look at this story through a variety of lenses, but today we're going to look at it through the lens of the gospel. And we're going to see what it's telling us about people's sin and God's grace. And that's why I've entitled the message, Cain and Abel, Our Sin and God's Grace. And what I really hope for us this morning is that we'll learn to cooperate with God's grace and escape sin. Sin can be so destructive. All right, well, last week we learned about what happened to Adam and Eve after they rebelled against God, chose to trust the serpent rather than God, and ate the fruit and sinned. And then things like shame and hiding and fear and blaming entered the world for the first time. We call this the fall. And then we see that God gave the serpent and Adam and Eve consequences for their sin. But with a promise of redemption, one day Eve's offering would crush Satan. And then as part of their consequence, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, never to return again. And we learn that while God does give consequences, But in his grace, he limits the destructiveness of sin. And God would not allow Adam and Eve to go back into the garden. Remember the angel and the flaming sword um, so that they wouldn't reach out and eat of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state. What a grace. Now put yourself in their shoes. They're just leaving the garden. What would life be like east of Eden? I mean, would God be with them outside the garden? And what would happen to mankind now that sin has entered the world? In chapter 4, we see this pattern of sin and grace that extends through Scripture and into our lifetime. I've asked my two kids to read Genesis 4 for us, and so I'm going to have them do that now. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother, Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which is opening its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad was the father of Mahujel, and Mahujel was the father of Methushel, and Methushel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, it's a long story, but the first thing we learn is that Adam and Eve have two sons. Let's go back and read it again. Genesis 4, 1 and 2. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Now it's interesting to know that Cain's name means possessing or acquiring or even creating. And Abel's name means frail, vaporous, transitory. Tim Keller's translation goes like this. Cain's name means that he's a somebody. And Abel's name means that he's a nobody. My version, Cain is the big cheese. Abel is the afterthought. Now, often when we think of these two brothers, we do notice what's different, right? Abel's the rancher, he keeps flocks. Cain is the farmer, he works the soil. But what we fail to miss is what they have in common. Think about it. They both seem pretty hardworking. They both sacrifice to the Lord. In many ways, they both worship, and they're both religious. Let me read that part again. Genesis 4, 3 through 4. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, this bit of scripture leads to some important questions. 
Why? Why did God look with favor on Abel's offering and not Cain's? What was Cain's sin and what was going on in Cain's heart? Now, Tim says, Scripture interprets Scripture. So rather than speculating, which it's so tempting to do, but it's also super unfruitful and sometimes dangerous, we want to look at other passages in the Bible to help us. So we're going to read Hebrews 11.4, which says this, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Okay, so by faith, Abel brought his fat portions, which means the best, and then the firstborn of his flock. Now, those details are there for a reason. And is it a faith action? Does it take faith to bring your first and your best to God? Absolutely. But can I do that with the wrong motives? Can I bring my first and my best in an effort to try to get God to owe me or bless me or fill in the blank? So we can have wrong motives or we can give God our first and our best because think of these motives. First, we're grateful for his mercy, for his love, and for his promises. Number two, we believe he is worthy. He is worthy of our offering, our praise, and our worship. And number three, we trust that he's going to provide for us as we give up our first and our best. He's got our back and he's going to provide for us. So I want to ask you, do you give to get God to get? Or do you give out of gratitude? I'm going to say it again. Do you give to God to get? Or do you give out of gratitude? And I'm just going to tell you, even as I was spent the hours preparing and writing this sermon um, there was a part of me that was sort of self-focused. I'm not sure what I was trying to get, um, but maybe people to think well of me or think I had something to say. And yesterday, God just turned that around and said, what if you just do this because you're grateful for all I've done for you? And I am so grateful. All right, there's a sort of parallel idea in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 6, 33 and 34. And it says this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, but tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we give our first and our best. We seek God's kingdom first. So I want to ask you, what are you seeking? And what does your daily calendar suggest about your priorities? Do you have kingdom priorities? Is your relationship with God first and central? Or is it sort of an afterthought, something relegated to maybe if I have a spare moment, I'll pick up my Bible? Think about that. All right, so let's go back to Cain. If Cain is not offering in faith, which he wasn't, in gratitude for the grace of God's presence and the gift of his promises, don't forget the promise in Genesis 3.15, then the only way to sacrifice to God is for one of these reasons, to either appease God so he won't be angry at you, or to be accepted by God, or to gain God's favor, or get God to owe you 
And here's the great news. We don't need to work our way to God. God worked his way to us by sending his son, Jesus. All right, so the first way we cooperate with grace is by trusting and relying on God, escaping the sin of self-effort and self-reliance, which we see hinted at with Cain. All right, there's another thing I want you to notice about Cain. Cain had a wrong view of God. He thought his effort would put him in good standing with God, but obviously it didn't. You know, he gave the offering and God did not favor it. So what's going on there? So I want to point out that sin begins with a wrong or sometimes incomplete view of God. Remember Eve in the garden? Once she believed that God was withholding something that was really good from her and that there were actually no consequences for disobeying God's command, that's when she sinned. She really didn't get who God was. And her wrong view of God caused her to doubt God's goodness and to sin. So let me give you a modern day example. A church may unintentionally emphasize, you know, the blessings of God with little mention of the reality that we also share in the sufferings of Christ. We might think, go to church, God will bless us. Go uh, give God, right? Give, give a tithe and God will bless us. If we're Cain, give a grain offering and God will bless us. You'll have love and joy and peace. And that is true enough because as we walk in the Spirit, we get those gifts of the Spirit. But we kind of also want to throw in some extra modern day blessings, you know, like, okay, well, maybe God will give me a nice house or a good marriage, you know, two and a half kids and a dog and some nice vacations. Now, there's nothing wrong with God gracing us with those things, but assuming or demanding those things is not uh, helpful. And the problem, of course, with that view is Jesus. <laughs> he lived a perfect life. He was obedient to the Father, and yet he had nowhere to lay his head. He was insulted, misunderstood, mistreated. He died a horrible death on our behalf. He was willing to suffer for our good, and God asks us to be willing to suffer for the good of others. God does not promise an American dream easy life. He promises a meaningful and purposeful life that is rich and satisfying. The prosperity gospel says, if I have faith, God will give me what I want. The true gospel says, if I have faith, I will surrender what I want and trust God to give me what is truly good. And I have seen God do that over and over as I surrender to him. So as you spend time in the Word this week, I'm going to just ask you to look to know God better. What is He promising and what is He not promising? Understand His character. And understanding Him and who He is, this is our first line of protection against sin. All right, back to Cain and Abel. Honestly, it's bothered me that God didn't find favor with Cain's offering. I mean, it wasn't the best, but he tried. I mean, why couldn't God show Cain a little more grace? But as I've studied this passage, I actually see God's grace. By not finding favor with his offering, God was exposing Cain's heart. 
and exposing our sinful attitudes and motives is a mark of God's grace. And especially God exposing that sin at the root or at its birth is a real kindness, and that's what God is doing with Cain. And my question is, are you listening, or are you shrugging off those first convictions of sin? Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like the psalmist, we can ask God to reveal sin and experience the grace of God. It can be a very scary prayer, but honestly, sin revealed is the gateway to restoration. And this is a powerful way to cooperate with God's grace and escape sin. All right, so God's graciously uh, calling Cain out. What's Cain's response? When his nobody brother Abel finds favor with God and he does not. Genesis 4, 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I want you to notice the gentleness of grace. How does God interact with simple people like us? So first of all, God gently and graciously initiates. He asks some questions. Why are you so angry? Why are you downcast? And in asking those questions, he's graciously and gently exposing sin so it can be healed, so it can be dealt with. And then we see God graciously warning. If you do this, things are going to go well. But if you make this choice, things are going to go really badly for you. That is kind to warn people. Right? And the last thing God does is he graciously affirms. He says, you have a choice here. And you can choose the right thing. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, Everything that makes your face fall is grace saying, You have an opportunity to grow here. Everything that makes you angry or sad is grace saying, You have an opportunity to grow here. So, how do you know if you are Cain or an Abel? Here's a quick test. When your life doesn't go well, do you get bitter and angry at God? That's how you can tell. That shows you believe God owes you something better than what you have right now. All right, I want to look at verse 7 a little bit more closely. Sin here is described as a metaphor. And the metaphor is sin is like a predator, maybe a tiger or a lion, crouching down, hiding out of sight, waiting for the right moment to spring on its prey. Sin springs to life when you aren't paying attention and can take you over. Sin can be subtle and hidden, and if left unchecked, it'll eventually take you over and enslave you. Romans 6.16 puts it this way, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, 
which leads to righteousness. That's the problem with sin. It will enslave us. But sometimes we don't see it. We are blind to it. It's there, all right. It's lurking in the shadows. But we rationalize, we minimize, we deny, we get defensive. Let me give you a few examples. We might think, okay, I really shouldn't nurse that grudge. Or probably shouldn't have that attitude or covet that thing that someone else has. Or maybe I shouldn't consume my time by blank. But you know, it's not really that bad. So in the beginning stages of self-pity or bitterness or pride or greed, or even the early stages of addiction, we have choice. But sin is a power, make no mistake. It starts as a choice and then it takes you over. Let me give you a few more just real world examples of how we might minimize our sin. I might tell myself, I'm not a workaholic. I'm a very dedicated employee. I don't need to be in control. Honestly, I just want people to cooperate with my agenda because honestly, I'm probably right. I am not clicky or unloving. I just don't want to spend time, you know, with, with those people over there. I'm not addicted to my phone or TV. I'm just entertained or informed or available or need downtime. I'm calling these crouching sins. They're subtle, they're hidden, but they're there. And we can easily explain them away, especially if everyone else is doing them. And we could choose not to see them. But know this, all sin has consequences. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to his flesh from his flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to his spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So I want to ask you, do you know your crouching sins? Think about that. Those crouching sins are the sins that have been present so long you justify them away. Or perhaps you view them as flaws in your character, not that big a deal, or an unchangeable part of who you are. If you know your crouching sins, I want to challenge you to write them down and maybe tell them to someone else and pray and move towards repentance. And if you're not aware but courageous, I want you to ask some people who know you well and ask what they would say, what were your crouching sins? Uh, Tim actually asked us to do this at the beginning of the year, slightly differently phrased, but uh, we had to pray and ask God to show us some idols in our life. So I picked the top five. Unfortunately, I have more. And that, that was easy. Some of those I already knew about, right? But then the next step was we had to confess those idols to someone else. And then the hardest part was we had to repent and actually turn from them and replace them with the gospel. All right, so I'll just give you one. And one of my idols is getting things done. Now, I am a middle school teacher in the middle of the pandemic, and Tim jokes, that's my, you know, I moonlight that job and my full-time job is the work at the church, which there's some truth to that, right? And of course, I'm a mom. Um, but I can be a very focused person, ask my family. I'll be focused on something. I won't even hear what they're saying to me. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to be interrupted. Now, focus and finish can be a grace. I can get a lot done. 
but it can also be very unlikely. Jesus, well, I mean, he had way more important things to do than me. He was interrupted constantly, and the interruption became the good work, the way to love. And so God has been working in my heart. I start my day praying that I would love people well, but really by the middle of the day, I'm asking myself, what have I gotten done? What do I still need to do? Like I've lost that focus. And I want to keep asking myself that question. How do I honor Jesus today? How do I keep loving people well? And at the end of the day, not did I finish so I can rest and have my downtime, but did I love Jesus and people well? All right, here's the great news for Christians, all right, is that Christ has set us free from the power of sin. We are never stuck in our crouching, besetting sins. Even if we struggled with fear or anger or control our whole lives, Christ can set us free. If we have been addicted to something for decades, Christ can set us free. Romans 16, 17 says, but thanks be to God that Though you used to be slaves to sin, past tense, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master. It's not going to rule over you anymore because you are not under the law but under grace. All right, how do we cooperate with God's grace and escape sin? How do we be the joyful Abel and not the grumpy, angry Cain? All right, I'm just throwing this in here. First, we have to believe we are who God says we are. We are new creations. We are not that old person. And we're new creations in Christ Jesus, like God, created in righteousness and holiness. And then we recognize the danger of escalating sin. We have to believe that it's going to have some consequences, either in our present or down the road. We listen and we heed God's warnings. We confess and repent and pray, preferably with the help of other Christians. And then guess what? We watch God work in our hearts, transforming our desires and giving us different attitudes and responses. That's how we cooperate with God's grace. All right, back to Genesis 4. So God's doing all these gracious things to intervene and warn Cain. And it's really amazing how much God cares for the sinner. So what does Cain do? Cain still has a choice. Genesis 4, 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like premeditated murder. Cain lets sin take over. He lets sin rule over him, and he goes crazy. He goes nuts, and he kills his brother. Now you may be thinking, all right, yeah, that's an extreme case. Most people don't go from envy to murder, right? My crouching sins won't have that kind of harmful impact. But sin's escalation is repeated over and over again in Scripture. Let me give you just a few examples. Think about Joseph, right? He's the favored son, and his brothers are jealous. But it doesn't end there. Jealousy escalates, sin escalates, and they try to kill Joseph. They sell him into slavery. They lie to their father. And then they fear God's judgment for a really long time. Let's take King David. He struggled with lust for a beautiful woman. 
sin escalates. He takes Bathsheba for his own and kills her husband. How about the Pharisees? The Pharisees, right? They're supposed to be the good guys. They're the religious leaders. But they want power and honor and influence. And Jesus steals that from them. And they crucify him. One last one. Think about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He is resentful of his dad's grace towards his sinful brother. And he's honestly, he's envious of a party. He wants a goat party with his friends. And so he remains outside the party, right? And he's bitter and he's angry. Sin is escalating. And don't, you know, it's not just in the Bible. We see this in real life, right? The dedicated employee does become the workaholic, which wreaks havoc on his home life and his family. The curiosity about porn leads to an addiction. Self-pity turns into depression. One episode turns into five. Vanity turns into an exercise or diet obsession. The list could go on and on. Unchecked sin always escalates and leads to destruction every time. James 1.13 puts it this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is clearly uh, describing a cycle of sin. From desire to sin to death. And I want you to remember, if you're stuck in that cycle of sin, that Jesus can help you. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, we can always run to Jesus. Okay, Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse, driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood. From your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God again begins with a question, and it parallels that question in Genesis 3. Where are you? God asked Adam. Where is your brother? God asked Cain. God knows what happened. He doesn't need the answer to that question, but in his grace, he's giving Cain a chance to confess. And we see Cain's initial response, am I my brother's keeper? Shows a hardening of heart. So Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Notice he's added a few things that God didn't actually say. And notice a couple other things. Cain doesn't like his punishment, but he never sorrows over his sin. 
He doesn't lament the fact that he hurt someone, that he killed his brother, that he probably brought great pain to his parents. So while Eve had been talked into her sin, Cain will not have God talk him out of it, nor will he confess it, nor will he accept his punishment. But God's grace calls us to a different response when we blow it. We don't have to respond like Cain did. Right? God's grace calls us to sorrow over sin, not whine about our consequences. I'm going to say that again. God's grace calls us to sorrow over our sin, not whine about our consequences. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Paul details the church's response after Paul pointed out a grievous sin of the church in a previous letter. Okay, so the church has sin in it and they didn't address it. And so Paul is pointing that out and saying, you know what, that's not okay. So he writes this in this letter, and then here's what happens. He writes again, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When we sorrow over our sin because we've hurt God and others, that leads us to repentance and a turning from sin. But worldly sorrow, I would argue the sorrow Cain had that he just didn't like the consequences of his sin. That kind of sorrow leads to death. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So how is justice served in our confession and God's forgiveness? I mean, where's the justice and the punishment for our sin in that equation? Well, Hebrews 12, 24 describes Jesus as being the mediator of a new covenant, right? He takes on our sin and it says, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' bud pays the penalty for our sin, brings justice, and cries out for grace. Jesus is the better able. Confession, sorrow over sins, receiving God's forgiveness and grace, repentance, these are all signs that you are cooperating with God's grace. So again, I want to ask you, how do you respond when you become aware of sin in your life? Think back to the last time you were aware of a sin and think about how did you respond? Genesis 4.15, but the Lord said to him, so this is in response to his lament that he's being punished in this way and he's fearing death, right? So he says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. To me, honestly, this is one of the saddest parts of this story. 
he leaves God's presence. And I don't know if you remember this, but there's a part in Genesis where there's a moment where God says he will not go with Moses and the people. And Moses begs for God's presence. He says, how will we be distinguished among nations if you are not with us? And we see none of that in Cain. And then David Kindred, I like what he said about uh, God's response. He says that mark or sign is not a stigma, but a mark of safe conduct. It's almost a covenant, making him virtually Cain's goel or protector. And it is the utmost that mercy can do for the unrepentant sinner. It provides a chance for them to come to a place of repentance down the road. All right, so brief summary of what happens next. After Cain left God's presence, Cain married and had a son and named him Enoch. Enoch had sons and grandsons. And honestly, we could wonder where all these people come from, but that's not the point. So eventually from the line of Cain came a man named Lamech. And Lamech married two women, Ada and Zillah. And one day, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech's tonson reveals the swift progress of sin. Where Cain had succumbed to sin, given in to sin, Lamech exalts in it. He's proud of it. Where Cain sought protection and mercy, Lamech's looking around um, for, to be provoked, to do it again, right? Lamech's boast about killing a child for a mere wound. And with that boast, I want you to know that Lamech's line and Cain's line disappear from the biblical narrative. And if we ended on that note, we would be thinking, what is the hope for humanity? It's just getting worse. And, and that's something I think we should consider if we leave sin unchecked, it may not just impact us, it may impact future generations. But there's always hope. Genesis 4.25, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And you could even call this the first revival. And so I don't want us to miss, I know Spencer's going to talk more about this next week, but from Seth, you should know, comes Noah. And from Noah comes Abraham. And from Abraham comes King David. And from King David's line comes Jesus. And so with the birth of Seth is the hope of that seed that was promised, right? that promised seed Jesus that would come and destroy sin and death, finally. Uh, and so I want you to know as we end today that God's grace is always present east of Eden. The question is, will we cooperate with it? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the story that is just so rich with meaning. And I thank you for stories of people's mistakes and bad choices and hard-heartedness because in there we see how you respond to sinners and your grace and your mercy at every step hoping will turn. And God, so I pray for us as a church body that we would not be afraid to 
ask you to expose sin in our life, that we would receive that grace at the birth of sin and so that we don't have to, to face its tragic impact on us and of, on others. And so I pray, Lord, that this week, um, by the grace of your Spirit, that you will help us to cooperate with grace and escape the sin that so easily ensnares us. We love you, Lord. Amen.